News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Like a lot of parents out there know exactly what that song is. And we know that our Raji Silhal doesn't like listening to Disney music. But what about that one, Raji? Is that song okay for you? That's 100% okay with me. And I, yes, have been dancing over here behind the mic. I'll bet you have. Hey, we learned something interesting about you yesterday that I wanted to share with everybody. So mm. you were a bit of a high school athlete at Frank Hurt Secondary in Surrey, were you? I was indeed. I loved basketball. I loved volleyball. I played track. I did a uh, long jump, high oh, jump, really? and I was a sprinter. That's a lot of stuff. You were a busy girl. Simi, it was also a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that long ago? Don't expect me to uh, to like uh, shoot hoops with you with any kind of degree of skill anymore. I still will. I mean, it's fun to play, but uh, haven't been keeping my skills up for sure. I don't know. You sound like a Surrey superstar to me. Um, and Can I, was... I tell you the number on my back? Yeah, what is it? It was, it was seven, and it was something that I would always fight for every season of any sport. I had okay. to make sure that I got seven. Right, then I know you're an athlete, because if you're fighting for the same number with every sport, that, my daughter did that, and she played a bunch of different sports, basketball, field hockey, soccer, and she always wore the number 20. Or if she couldn't get that, her sec, her very you know low rated second choice was fifteen. So she was very particular about that. It was my only superstition. Like people wore certain things, like a sock up and one down, or you know they'd wear their hair a certain way. But my only superstition was I had to have my jersey. The one time, and I remember this game, it was uh, during a final in basketball, and I couldn't find my jersey. And I had to wear four, which is the grossest number. And uh, I had hey, that's games. somebody else's lucky number. Okay. That's true. True, true. <laughs> and what happened? But my unlucky number. Did you win the game? No, I played horribly. Oh, right. Because you had the number four on. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. <laughs> so That's typical. There. Well, shout out to all the sports teams at Frank Hurt Secondary then this morning because, you know, Raji is one of you. Uh, but we're also talking about Lego, hence the everything is awesome. Yeah, there's a new LGBTQ themed set that's coming out on June 1st. It's called Everyone is Awesome and it's really awesome. Bright 11 colors of the rainbow and Lego's VP of design um, who identifies himself as gay. Um, he made a model for his desk and they decided to produce it. So there's 11 figures with an awesome wall of rainbow colors behind them in a background. So design wise, they're super fun. Um, I'm not sure why, but Lego says this kit is for adults. It's not meant to explore relationships. It's just like characters and that display the pride flag colors. But it got me thinking, you know, do these kind of symbolic gestures mean anything? Like, why hasn't Lego had one of these sets already when companies like Mattel or, you know, even McDonald's have done uh, product design around product uh, around Pride Month before? And some critics will say, yeah, it's marketing, you know, tapping into that market. Um, but these gestures, I think, ultimately do matter because for all of us, mm -hmm. symbols of inclusivity but especially for LGBTQ folks who notice like, hey, there's a, a show of support. You know, I was crossing an intersection last weekend and it was a rainbow one. And my daughter, I didn't even think about it. I just kind of took it for granted. And my little daughter said, hey, this wasn't always painted rainbow. And I said, oh, she yeah. noticed that? Yeah, she did. And she also asked why. What is it for? And it was around City Hall in North Van. And uh, I explained it to her. And she thought, oh, that's really neat. 
Well, then why well, don't we have go. more rainbows everywhere? There you go. Your daughter is very introspective on that. Good for her. <laughs> I saw this set, this Lego set, and I really loved it. And I could see why they would say it's for adults. But honestly, I see how kids would love it too because kids just see how great it is, how colorful it is, and how much fun it looks like. Totally. And like you could put it on your desk. Kids could play with it, I think. Um, it might be because of the piece size, but my kids play with um, pieces that are way smaller. And I can also attest to that because uh, I step on them I was just gonna because say they're that. so small. <laughs> two, things, two things as a parent that, drove, that I loved as a child, hated as a parent. One was small Lego pieces and the other was silly putty. Like, or oh, and uh, Play-Doh, putty. sorry, Play-Doh. I think your kids probably were a little too old to have gone through the whole slime. Yeah, thing, they were. Right, they that, were. thank that goodness rage. for that. Yeah, I'm trying to shield my kids from that for as long as possible. We're still stuck in the sticker phase where mm. they need to put a keep sticker on absolutely everything. Yeah, and I made a new way. rule not not on mom, please. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, in thinking about this Lego, I was also you said that it's for they're marketing it for adults pretty much. Yeah, but I thought isn't aren't all those like really expensive Lego sets really just for adults? Like you're telling me a little child wants to build the Millennium Falcon because they're going to need some parents' help with that. So it really does become an adult project. It does. But I, my favorite thing about Lego is that I can't help but get down on the ground and start playing with them. And there's so many toys of theirs that I really don't want to do that whole thing. I don't want to sit on the ground and play. I want to do adult things. And then so I'm reminded, hey, like so much of childhood and my favorite memories as a child were like playing with my parents. And so, um, yeah, we got uh, one of my kids a complicated Mars rover set. And I had just as much fun with as they did with putting it together. We did not put it together correctly and it involved a lot of missteps <laughs> and um, and all those like opportunities for the kids also to be frustrated with putting it together were, were super fun. Um, we I wasn't a Lego kid myself. No? Up, oh, so. I got no, it. I, we just all. had the basic Lego so we didn't have these big sets but Harry Potter Lego uh, was very big in my house when my kids were growing up and I think I still have like a Rubbermaid tote full of all the Harry Potter Lego sets that we oh, built fun. and then, you know, left in a million pieces and still there somewhere and will probably be there forever in a closet. You know where they somewhere. are? They're actually in your vacuum filter. They are like wedged <laughs> between, you're wondering why your vacuum hasn't worked for 13 years. It's that, that reason. Yeah. I guess even though we're lifting all the restrictions, we're talking about Pride Month is coming up and our Pride Parade is usually uh, later in the year. We usually have it in August, right? At the height mm-hmm. of summer. But I don't know. Do you think it's going to happen this year? I am surprised with how quickly the numbers of cases are descending, and I'm super encouraged by that. And if I was listening to the premier, I would say, yes, things are going to be back on and we can look forward to more Pride Month activities. But I think overall, I think Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix are going to announce some some restrictions around that. So I, I'm waiting with bated breath on all of this stuff. Just like everyone, I am I'm hopeful, but also trying to like, you know, balance my expectations. Yes. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say hundred percent. Yeah, it sounds like what they've done, if you're looking at VancouverPride.ca, they're saying that uh, they're planning their 2021 Pride season of events. They said they've consulted with the City of Vancouver and the Park Board, and they're continuing to monitor provincial health guidelines, but their plan is to offer a hybrid season of events that includes small, in-person, socially safe events and online virtual offerings. Uh, So they are still working on that, but I think we're going to have to wait another year before the big parade happens again yeah yeah simi i'm kind of surprised at how we have all adapted to being spontaneous with planning 
You know, we're all getting, we are all very well used to, of course, there's frustrations along the way, but used to just hanging on, waiting for the announcement. That's uh, true. Before we do things safely. And I'm just impressed um, by most people. Most the people. <laughs> <laughs> the human mind is definitely adaptable. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. We'll be checking in with Raji Sala coming up a little bit later. So, yes, the Pride Society is one of many organizations that would normally have a lot of events coming up in the next few months that they are dialing it back at this point, even though today we are getting an update on provincial health restrictions. It doesn't mean that there's going to be huge parades at the end of August or when we would normally have the Pride Parade. And it doesn't mean that, you know, the PE is going to be able to come back on with, you know, full fully allowing everybody back in. This is Mornings with Simi. Clarity. That seems to be the buzzword today. All different sectors are looking for it, whether it's tourism, arts and culture, sports, you name it, restaurants. They all want to get some clarity from our reopening plan from the BC government today. So they are scheduled to release the much-anticipated details on this plan. It's expected to outline when we can start holding events or attending indoor social gatherings. I mean, there's a lot of expectations on this information that's coming out today. That will involve Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry, Premier John Horgan, Economic Recovery Minister Ravi Kellan, Health Minister Adrian Dix. They will all announce the details at 1 o'clock. We will be carrying that press conference live, so stay tuned for that during the Jill Bennett Show. But let's talk about what businesses need to hear today. Joining us is Anita Huberman, the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Good morning, Anita. Good morning. Are you a little nervous about what you might hear today? Nervous and excited. I mean, we've been waiting for this moment for a long time, but uh, as you know, the Surrey Board of Trade has always said that uh, businesses need certainty and they need advanced communication. And uh, that's been limited, especially, you know, since we've been, p- been playing guesswork, especially for the restaurant sector. Uh, the circuit breaker expired uh, last at midnight and uh, businesses don't really know where to go next. So what do you think businesses need to hear today? Do you need like absolute details, concrete plans? Well, what we need is uh, some level of certainty. We know that, uh, you know, as uh, your earlier uh, speaker indicated, Vaughn Palmer, that uh, many have not had their second vaccine. So we still need to be careful. We do need some certainty about when restaurants can open at full capacity, when uh, we can travel, uh, when will border restrictions uh, be eased, um, you know, when, uh, you know, hair salons, for example, um, you know, are we going to face another uh, shutdown? Uh, I think so many businesses, Simi, have faced, you know, this issue about, uh, you know, restart will be gradual, but then all of a sudden they're shut down or they receive warning right at the last minute and uh, supply chains are affected workers are affected hiring is affected and so we need to see today a stronger effective reopening plan uh, that requires things like rapid testing um, accessibility to businesses uh, uh, supporting employers to do the work to keep their workers safe restore consumer confidence uh, and really ensure that um we have childcare supports as well so that women can return, parents can return uh, back to the workforce uh, ultimately in this reopening plan that we're going to hear today. 
Right. Okay. So you must be hearing from a lot of businesses in Surrey as well. I mean, Fraser Health in particular, hard hit by what has been going on. Are, are restaurants, do you think, ready to reopen there? Are businesses ready to take that on? Some are better than others in terms of their readiness. Um, you know, many are just playing guesswork in terms of, uh, you know, uh, okay, we're going to open to indoor dining today. What does that mean? How many people can I hire? Is it going to be at full capacity? We don't have that information. So, yes, we've been hearing from many of our members uh, about that. And um, and also, you know, from our hair salons, our events industry, our arts and culture industry, what's going to happen? The summer is approaching. Uh, we, we just have no information and there is just such uh, a level of anxiety, but also excitement, too. So the idea is that one of the other restrictions had been that if, you know, you had a number of cases uh, in your workplace, you had to shut that workplace down for 10 days to, you know, to make sure those cases were dealt with. Is that something that you feel like should continue or could continue? Well, until uh, everyone is uh, fully vaccinated or the majority of the population is fully vaccinated, I think that does need to be in effect. But there needs to be a partnership with the business uh, in terms of uh, just not shutting the business down, but communication. There will be outbreaks. And yes, business owners are responsible for protecting their workers. Uh, but uh, in this very unusual situation where we don't know if we're going to receive a fourth wave, we don't know what the variants are going to look like, we're still facing this significant connection between health and business mm. uh, that we've never faced before. And, you know, what has it been like for you in your position as the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade? I'm t- I'm, has it changed your relationship with businesses because you're taking on a bit of a different role in advocating for them now? I would say yes. Uh, I think, uh, you know, never before did I think that I needed to be in this situation where I said to our members or the business community at, uh, you know, in, in a larger context to that you need to focus on the health of your workforce. Uh, you need to, uh, you know, take, you know, uh, you know, some type of uh, pieces and, uh, and compromise. And, you know, I never thought that I would say those words, that you need to compromise for the bottom line. Uh, but uh, that's definitely been the case uh, during this pandemic. It's also changed the relationship with government, though, too, hasn't it, for businesses? Because really, they've needed biz- the government at this point to help them stay afloat in many cases. Absolutely. And I don't think uh, many businesses would have survived without uh, federal or provincial government support. And so that relationship has changed because we needed them in order to survive. Uh, But, uh, you know, ultimately, it's the private sector, you know, that moves the economy. Uh, We're a small and medium-sized economy in British Columbia, 98% of our economy are SMEs, even in Surrey. And, uh, you know, we're all looking forward to making more money, uh, hiring workers, supporting workers, and getting back to doing business. Is this going to be, do you think, a make or break time then for businesses, right, who perhaps have had that support, have been waiting, thinking, okay, let's just open things up, but now now they're going to find out if they can actually make this thing work? Well, unfortunately, for some businesses, they've already been broken. One in 25 businesses in Surrey have shut down during the pandemic. But yes, 
uh, today's reopening plan and whatever phased in approach, careful approach that I expect that will be announced today is going to say uh, to a business, you know, can I survive in the next six months? Uh, what supply chains are going to be impacted? Can I hire workers? Where am I going to source them from? Uh, so I, I think a lot of these decisions and dilemmas are going to face uh, business owners today and in the weeks to come. So what is really high up on your wish list then, Anita, with this announcement today? What do you want to hear most importantly from it? We want to hear dates and timelines and certainty uh, for businesses in different industries and when they can fully reopen. Uh, we need access to rapid testing because we know the virus is going to stay with us forever, uh, or at least in the, 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 the short term, long term. But, uh, you know, we need supports, bottom line, and we need timelines, bottom line. All right, Anita, thanks for your time today. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, the Fraser Health Authority has had a lot of challenges during this pandemic, and now they're worried about vaccination rates, making sure that the younger ages in particular really get their vaccine, book those appointments, register for them. So they've launched a new campaign to make that happen. Joining us now is Dr. Victoria Lee, the CEO of Fraser Health. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. What are vaccination rates like right now in Fraser Health? Our vaccination rates are actually overall quite good. Uh, uh, I think we're above the around uh, uh, and above the provincial average, so we're seeing very good uptake. I think what we're seeing with the younger people is that uh, uh, from our surveys, they're keen to get their vaccines, but not in a rush to do so. And so you would like to rush them along a little bit more? Exactly. We've been uh, working with our young adult influencers in the region uh, since wave two, actually, and they've been providing us with valuable insights. So one of the things that we've done is to launch a campaign uh, that encourages everybody to register and get immunized right away. Right now, I know that campaign's been running for a week or two now. So what, what kind of results have you been seeing? We're seeing some very positive results. Uh, we've run a couple of uh, clinics over the weekend in Surrey that are neighborhood clinics and all of our mass clinics as well, uh, seeing um, much more uh, uptake in vaccines and registrations as well. Right. So has it been challenging, Dr. Lee, dealing with the last little, I mean, you've got, you've had outbreaks, you've had workplace situations. Uh, Fraser Health has really seen it all, hasn't it? Yes, uh, Fraser Health has had uh, a disproportionate impact of the pandemic and for many reasons, uh, much of the industries are uh, located in the region. We're the most populous region as well in terms of population size and most dense in terms of uh, how people live and uh, a lot of uh, factors uh, such as household sizes that are bigger uh, than uh, two or three people in the region as well. So all of those factors uh, actually connect to the fact that transmission can be higher in our region. Right. Do, do you think that Fraser Health or any health authority for that matter has done enough when it comes to reaching out to certain communities where perhaps English is not the first language? Uh, was there enough done to reach out to them? Yeah, I think uh, it's uh, uh, one of the things that drew me to Fraser Health is the fact that I could practice global health in a local setting and uh, uh, very much so, Fraser is a global 
uh, type of population. We have 90% of refugee population and 40% of newcomers that settle in our region. And uh, from the beginning of the pandemic, we have been working with community organizations, religious leaders, ethnic media, as well as general media. And we've had um, uh, town halls and platforms in multiple languages that's been hosted by various uh, leaders. Again, in all of our materials are translated into uh, 12 to 14 languages. So uh, lots and lots of efforts have been made, of course, to ensure that we're reaching out to diverse populations and ensuring that we have diverse strategies to meet diverse populations as well. Yeah, I noticed that things changed when it came to the vaccination campaigns where you definitely got into those communities, you know, setting up the clinics and Gurdwaras and so forth. Uh, But could that have been done sooner, do you think, in terms of dealing with the outbreaks and getting the message across about the rules and social distancing? Yeah, and uh, we've actually been doing this for some time. Maybe it wasn't as um, widely known, but uh, for instance, we've been connecting with uh, uh, Sikh soccer groups, uh, specific uh, um, grocery stores we've had people going out to. Uh, We've actually had uh, not just uh, translated materials, but culturally appropriate materials, for instance, on how to wear a mask for different uh, ethnic groups as well. All of our uh, materials, infographics have also been uh, translated and reached out to uh, through different uh, channels. So we've been using community organizations as well as our own South Asian Health Institute and also religious and municipal uh, linkages as well. And I think what's happened is we have been using those channels throughout the pandemic and it's been enhanced and expanded uh, with the vaccine efforts. Okay, so what when you talk about focusing on the FOMO of younger people uh, to yeah. get them to pay attention, how are you doing that? What is how are you getting that message out to them? Yeah, so our new Fight the FOMO campaign encourages young people, as I mentioned, to register and immunize right away. And it's uh, using a series of 30-second videos posted on our social media channels. We're reminding people what's been missing, what we've all been missing out on on uh, in the past 16 months. And things like live music, weddings, grandparents, family, encouraging all of them right now to register and get immunized right away. Okay, so are you seeing an actual uptake in, in people registering? Yes, uh, since we've opened up to ages 12 and plus and 18 and plus uh, recently as well, we've seen increases in registration. We've also seen increases in immunizations as well. And so we're seeing good uptake overall so far. Now, are you planning as well to start giving vaccinations to that 12 to 17 year old group? And what does that look like? Yeah, uh, we have already since uh, uh, the registration has opened up. And uh, one of the things that we're trying to do provincially is to ensure that it's as convenient as possible. So uh, when a parent or um, sibling has an appointment, uh, they can come as a family. Uh, So we've actually seen that throughout our uh, clinics where parents have brought uh, both of their children or three children uh, when there's appointment for one. And we're accommodating all of those right now. Uh, And it's leading to about uh, 2000 immunizations a day in addition to what's been booked. Right. Would you say that all the appointments that are available, Dr. Lee, in Fraser Health right now, like are they taken? Yes, they're um, 100% booked for this coming week, uh, but there's appointments available for next week. All right. Good to know. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. Bye for now.
by. That's Dr. Victoria Lee, the CEO of Fraser Health, talking about how they are using social media to get the message out to younger people. Uh, vaccinations were lagging in the younger groups. Now they, you know, they're kind of ramping back up again, but they're trying to use that fear of the FOMO thing, right? Fear of missing out to get younger people to register for those vaccines and get themselves vaccinated. And as you heard them say, there is a lot of uptake. They have appointments available for next week. And of course, they're going to soon be moving into the 12 to 17 year olds. On that note, I should mention, uh, Moderna this morning has announced that they have shown excellent results with their vaccine when it is used also by 12 to 17 year olds. Up until now, we've been talking about the Pfizer vaccine uh, being used for that age group. Moderna now saying they're showing excellent results. They will be applying uh, to the regulators, both in Canada and the United States, to be able to use their vaccine as well in that age group. So things certainly changing, moving younger uh, with those vaccinations too. This is Mornings with Simi. So for the past few weeks, we've talked about the rise in anti-Asian crime here in Metro Vancouver. And then, of course, there was that article in Bloomberg, right, that called Vancouver the anti-Asian racism capital of the world. Well, when you look at it, more than half of UBC's population identifies as Asian. So the university is responding to these wave of concern with a two-day forum that's happening on June 10th and the 11th to tackle these issues. Here's our Raji Sohal with more. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Good morning. Yeah, when when something like this happens, when we start hearing about these crimes, people being spat upon, uh, people being berated in stores and that kind of thing, this wave of anti-Asian crime, it feels so uncomfortable to sit with the truth that our city has a racism problem. Having Bloomberg pointed out was uh, even more uncomfortable. And over 80% of polled East Asian BC respondents to a survey said that the racism against them has felt worse since the beginning of the pandemic, which makes you wonder, okay, well, once the pandemic is over, everyone's been vaccinated, is this racism just going to go away? Are these crimes going to fizzle? And the reality is it's not, right? There are some underlying issues that we all have to confront together. And I talked to Professor Henry Yu at UBC. He's spearheading a uh, forum at the university that's focused on this topic, and it's going to involve stakeholders from all over. It's going to involve high school students and different institutions, the government, people from the health sector, not just academics. It's not just going to be about, hey, like the ivory tower having an insular, uh, you know, academic conversation. And he's a historian. It's important to him that people acknowledge the legacy of racism that exists here today. And I'll say this, that one of the forms of white supremacy, the magical alchemy of white supremacy in Canada is it's like the devil. His greatest trick was to make himself disappear. You know, that's interesting because we talk about and we hear about events like the head tax, right? Or taking land from Indigenous people and how they were treated in the past. And I feel like sometimes there's this mentality of, yeah, but that was then. That's Mm -hmm. not now. Oh, we're past that now. Oh, completely. Or if I'm, um, you know, if I've ever encountered racism and I and I dare to call it out, which you know takes a lot to muster up the courage sometimes mm-hmm. to do that in certain situations, I have been told, no, that didn't even happen to you now. Like I'm telling really? someone something that just occurred, and I'm told, no, that didn't happen. People, People try to gaslight you. Yeah, absolutely. Racism is an uncomfortable topic. And of course, for yes, a lot of white people, just the word alone can send people running. And today is a solemn day in like global history. Today marks the anniversary of George Floyd's death. 
So we're not talking about, you know, his death happening five decades ago when we used to be a, a racist place. No. And it's, it's still going on, isn't it? Here's Henry Yu again. For me, one of the number one problems in terms of racism against Asians is that it's part of a long history where we think racism was in the past. So yes, we teach students, oh yeah, there was a head, Chinese head tax. Yes, there was the Komagata Maru incident in 1914. Yes, we removed Japanese Canadians you know, during the Second World War. But all of those suggest that we used to be racist and we stopped being racist in some you know, non-distinct time in the 60s or 70s, maybe. You know? And so the idea that, in fact, racism exists, it didn't stop, it didn't go away, it is the product of that moment. It's structured into our institutions. It, whose leadership, who's at the bottom, who, who gets seen as belonging here? That is so interesting then, too. Is that something that they're going to discuss at this forum? Yeah, it will be. And, you know, I, I couldn't myself even wait to ask Henry Yu, um, okay, so what are the solutions? What are we going to do? What do we all need to do? Because racism is so uncomfortable and we want to just like get past it. You know, even I have that conditioning in me. And he said, hold on a second. Like, there is so much work to do before we get to solutions. We got to hear people's stories. We got to hear about how the last year impacted people of Asian descent and um, how they themselves had to navigate this and and what, what kind of things do they need? There's been like a huge toll on people's mental health too. And, you know, there's been a cost, a sacrifice made in trying so hard to just handle things on their own yeah. and not be vocal about what has gone on. So um, I think there will be a lot of listening for other people. And the interesting thing about this conference is that uh, the public can participate on uh, one of the days when it's happening. Uh, the forums on June 10 and 11, it's all held virtually, but they want to take uh, questions and insights from the general public. So it's a great opportunity to learn too. Oh, that's great. Okay. Sounds like a plan for a lot of people. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That is, once again, that's our Raji Sohal, but she was talking about the National Forum on Anti-Asian Racism that will be held virtually by UBC, and it is available for the public to participate in. It's happening on June 10th and the 11th. This is Mornings with Simi. We know that transit ridership has gone way down during the pandemic, right? Ridership, in fact, is still down 60% compared to last year. Uh, that's a huge amount, I should say, compared to the year before that. So 20, 20, 2019, 2020, 2021, we still haven't seen a whole lot of recovery when it comes to people riding transit. Meanwhile, what kind of impact has that had on neighborhoods, on communities? Well, it turns out downtown, of course, is disproportionately feeling the impact of that. To talk more about all of this, we're joined now by Peter Hall, who's a professor of urban studies at Simon Fraser University, who has been reviewing TransLink kind of ridership figures on this. And thanks for joining us this morning, Peter. Sure. Hi. Nice to see you, uh, Simi. What struck you when you looked over these figures? What kind of picture do you think it tells us about the state of our transit system? Well, um, the uh, the modes that are oriented towards downtown, so that's uh, West Coast Express, Seabus, and to some extent Skytrain, they're um, they're still lagging behind um, bus and uh, handy docks. So that uh, that says to me we're still seeing the effects of people not coming downtown. And um, what has recovered is um, automobile traffic um, as counted by bridge crossings. Okay, so are people, do you think, choosing cars? 
I think there's a bit of a bit of choosing cars. Um, there's um, there's there's probably more people who ride by car who need to go to um, sites sort of spread out across the region. So anyone who's working construction, anyone who's working uh, in in uh, warehouses, those kind of locations, they're more likely to have to drive. Uh, and then and then people who only need to come downtown once or twice a week or maybe even less than that because, um, you know, they're only needed in the office very infrequently, they're not going to buy a monthly pass. They're going to drive. Right. So you are a professor of urban studies and geography. Then what does that tell us about the impact that will have on an area like downtown? Well, so... Um, Transbank, I'm sure, are working hard on this, and they're and they're and they're going to need to. Um, we've had a transit system that's been oriented towards getting people in and out of the downtown core efficiently. Um, that's that's what transit does. It's just a whole lot better way to move people around than than have them go in their in their vehicles. But if there is less reason to travel downtown and more reason to travel locally or sort of, you can say, horizontally across the region, maybe we need to um, think about uh, about a, a slightly different transit system um, after the pandemic. That's so interesting because this was something that was talked about for a long time, right? The original plan for light rail in Surrey was to connect communities in Surrey, but then they went with SkyTrain instead. Well, you've <laughs> that's exactly uh, the kind of example I had in mind. You know, we're... we're I'm not saying we should rethink that decision. Um, that's been a that's been a hard fought debate, but um, there's no doubt that the SkyTrain line to Langley is about getting people downtown as quickly as possible. Whereas the um, the, the the Newton Guildford um, link, that was about people moving around Surrey um, and actually between some some pretty important uh, job locations and um, right. educational institutions, that kind of stuff. So yeah completely agree with you there. So is that why then buses are seeing greater ridership than SkyTrain? Um, it's, it's probably, it's probably um, uh, showing that it's, it's, you know, buses make no mistake. Buses are also down, um, but uh, particularly local serving and, um, and then those routes where, where the, the fixed links don't go. So, you know, um, it, uh, Think of think of any kind of suburban work and uh, activity location um, where buses and trans where 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 SkyTrain doesn't go, where buses do go. Yeah, that that'd be part of that picture. So, what does that mean for downtown then? Like that that's not a good sign for like actually coming downtown and and having that be kind of a thriving space. Um, you know, uh, we'll 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 see we'll see what what form the recovery takes. You know, the the um, the I think the key thing is, I'm sure downtown will come back. Um, it's it's just too attractive and it's too desirable. Will it come back to the same level? Maybe not. Um, I think I think what we need to be creative about is making sure that if if people are only coming downtown two times a week, let's say, um, let's still try and find a way of providing transit and making them um, uh, want to take transit for that trip rather than drive their car. Um, and um, and 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 clog up the roads um, in in the process, um, and that's that's not going to be an easy thing to get right. Um, but I, I think that would be a preferable kind of solution. Have we seen this happen? Has this ever happened before, Peter? Like, and and do areas rebound? Do we have an idea how long that takes? Um, they 
they they do tend to rebound um and and part of the reason why they why they rebound is that you know the 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 office space is there the um the facilities are there but also people want to be where other people are um and so i i think i think the task um for transit is is how to really send the message that this is a safe this is a safe option um this is not this is not a you don't need to worry about um getting sick just because you took the bus to work um uh, you know so it takes time is what you're saying like slowly as we get things back to normal do you think people will go back to their ways including riding transit um i think people will go back to riding transit but i i do i do think there's a possibility that overall we'll see less movement um uh and and that'll come in the form of people um, doing some days of work at home and some days in the office, uh, and so um, we've we've built our transit system around um, five days a week. Everybody wants to go in the same direction. <laughs> now we need to be thinking about a transit system that has got a little bit more of um, only a few days a week, different directions. Today I'm going to go to the office. Tomorrow I'm going to go to a co-working space and have a meeting with someone, and the next two days I'm going to stay at home. That's a that's a different kind of transit system. Right. That, that's not something you'd see in the big cities, right? That's like a New York City kind of transportation system. Um, it, sure. Um, I mean, where where <laughs> if you're if you're sitting in the far outer suburbs of of uh, of New York, you're um, you're coming in daily the way a lot of people in Vancouver do. But you know, New York is so large and so dense that there's a lot more um, crisscrossing kind of movement, people going from, you know, not all going in the same direction, going to two different places, that kind of thing. And probably we'll see more of that. We, 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 we were heading in that direction anyway. Right. Um, you know, you know, that's what the line out to UBC was about. That's what um, connecting up the uh, big job, job generators like the hospitals and um, those kind of uh, facilities was about. And we're, we're, we are seeing more of that in Vancouver as well. So what does that look like, though? Like if we say we're going to, you know, re- develop our transit system, so we're talking about moving within communities, what kind of changes mm. do we have to make? Um, so it probably means um, it probably means less of the SkyTrain um, type capacity. Um, it, it hopefully means some, some light rail in some locations. It probably means more of those kind of um, uh, transport those kind of uh, let's call them transversal um, east-west um, bus routes, right. um, and um, and it probably also means um, more sort of um, you know, making sure we don't walk away from those local um, connector buses, feeder buses, and uh, and those kinds of things that allow people to move around their neighbourhood um, if if it's too far to walk. So yeah, so fascinating to think this is what we're going to be dealing with in the next few uh, years. Uh, Peter, thanks for joining us. I'm sure we're going to be talking to you about this in the future. Oh, you're welcome, Simi. Nice to chat.